Our text this morning is Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Luke 12, 1 through 6. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Uh, Father, as we look at Christ teaching his disciples, preparing them uh, for his departure, preparing them for their life on this earth, preparing them for eternal life, God, I ask that you would give us eager hearts to learn from Jesus to have him disciple us, to have him prepare us to endure in faith to the end. Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us believe what is real, what true perspective is Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that hasn't yet trusted in Christ, that there hasn't yet had their sins forgiven, Lord, I pray that you would draw them in this morning, that you would give them a heart that trembles at the reality of an eternity separated uh, from God and his goodness uh, in hell. Lord, I pray that you would shine the hope of Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last couple weeks, we've looked at Jesus' response to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. We've seen two and a half years already of uh, Jesus' ministry, his miracles, his power put on display, his teaching. Enough has been put on display. And his tone towards the crowds and towards the religious leaders has become increasingly more full of warnings and judgment. If they haven't yet concluded that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one who speaks truth, 
they are in a very dangerous position as these religious leaders were. We've just looked at this conversation Jesus has had with the Pharisee as he sat down to eat lunch with him and as Jesus exposed his hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of all the Pharisees and the lawyers. And as we come to this text, we're going to see Jesus focus in on his disciples. And he begins to prepare them to persevere because life on this earth is going to be very difficult for any disciple of Christ. And he's preparing them. One of the main ways he prepares them is he gives them real perspective, right perspective. The things Jesus says in this passage would make the average person say, get real. Are you kidding me? Are you out of your mind in what you're saying? Because the way we naturally see things, the way we see the world, the way we perceive reality is different than the way things really are. Our ways are not like God's ways. His ways are higher than our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth are His ways higher than our ways. That's a long ways. So I beg you this morning to lean in to Christ as He prepares His disciples and as He prepares us to persevere in faith and trust Him. I think one of the biggest mistakes, theological mistakes made for Christians today. It's the thing I see in the counseling room maybe most often is what theologians would call an over-realized eschatology. And that might not mean anything to you. What it means is this. It's not important that you know that term. But it's thinking we're living in a different time than we're really living in. Living a fast-forward life. You remember when Peter got to see the transfiguration of Christ and got to see uh, Jesus transfigured? What does he say? He says, let me make a home for Christ and for Moses. And uh, let's live the glorified life now. And the Father speaks out. And what does he say? He says, listen to my son. Be quiet, Peter. Jesus hasn't suffered yet. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. This is a fast forward to what it's going to be like in heaven, but we're not there yet. And many Christians begin to doubt the goodness of God because they think in their mind that life on this earth should be easier than it is. If God is real, 
then why am I suffering this way? As though God promised we wouldn't. When in fact, Jesus taught his disciples that they would suffer. In fact, he guaranteed they would suffer. In this world, you'll have trials and troubles and tribulations, but take heart for I have overcome this world. We are not in heaven yet. We need to remember where we are. And as a way of illustration, before we jump into the text, I want to point to Paul. In Acts 9.15, Ananias was told that he's supposed to go talk to this Saul of Tarsus, which becomes Paul, and he's going to go, supposed to bring a message to him. And Ananias says, uh, do you realize this is the Saul that's killing Christians? You want me to go talk to him? But here's the message the Lord gave him uh, to tell Paul. The, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, uh, of my name before the Gentiles and the king's and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God chose Paul, and he chose him, and he said, Paul, let me show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. What a call to ministry, right? This is why... Self-help books from a Christian perspective are weird. As though the Bible tells us that the purpose of God's word is to make our life easier down here on earth. To help, it, help us live these lives that don't have problems and don't struggle. When Paul's told, you're my chosen instrument. I've chosen you to suffer for the sake of my name. Now that's not it. Because glory comes after suffering. That's why Paul says things like this. Uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.6. He knows he's about to be killed at the hands of the Romans. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And my time of departure has come. He's already suffered a whole lot. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. You see that? His life experience as a Christian was described as a fight of faith. As a race. Have you ever ran a mile? Have you ever ran a half marathon or a marathon. Most people don't enjoy running long distances. Some do. I don't understand that, but some do. <laughs> but this is how the Christian life is described. It's hard. But then he says this, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. For all those who have loved Christ. Yes, they're going to suffer. Yes, their time of departure is going to come. But there's a crown of righteousness. By the way, that's what you need to get into heaven. Is perfect righteousness. By the way, you don't have it. No one can be saved apart from Jesus because to stand in God's presence, you must be perfectly righteous. And not only are you not perfectly righteous, you're by nature a child of wrath. What comes natural to you is rebellion and sin. And that's what comes natural to me. So if we're to be saved, it's not going to come from within, but from without. We need a Savior. And Jesus came. He lived the perfect life we could never live. That perfect life is a gift built up called righteousness that is given to every saint that will trust in Him. Not only does Jesus pay the price for your sin and satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. But he also doesn't just make you neutral. He gifts you righteousness. It's amazing what the gospel says. Paul goes on to say in Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, in this life I've lost all things. I count them as rubbish for the sake of knowing him. And the average person will say, get real. Come on, be reasonable. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's just got done describing saints of the past, some who triumphed in their faith, others who were sawn in two and persecuted and tortured for their faith. And he says, they're witnesses up in heaven. Some people, a lot of commentators believe, in a sense, it's like they're watching the race. And we're running the race. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he go to the cross? How did he do it? Because there was joy set before him at the other end. Despising the shame, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility to himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You and I are going to be tempted in this, our suffering on this earth to grow weary and say, I've seen too much. I've endured too much pain. I've seen too many people die. I've seen too many hurricanes hit the coast. But he says, consider Jesus who suffered more than any other human being ever suffered willingly. Willingly. And then he says, in your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying, don't be wimps. Don't say, I've, I've seen too much suffering. I don't know if God's real anymore. I'm just going to go sin. I don't care anymore. Don't do that. You haven't suffered as much as Christ. You haven't. Endure. There's people that have gone before you that have finished the race, that have endured to the end. They're a cloud of witnesses looking down, saying, you can do it. And in our text, Jesus is preparing them. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. And here's his message to disciples. Point one in your notes is you must beware of religious hypocrisy. This is a danger for every disciple of Christ. He says, it says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. Now that's key. He just got done with the Pharisee. Huge crowds have gathered and he turns to his disciples and he's teaching them. He's warning them. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. If you boil the Pharisees down, you come up with hypocrisy. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts were evil. They did not love God. They loved the praise that comes from man. And then he says to them, beware of hypocrisy. And he gives two little proverbs. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Or hidden that will not be known. My disciples, listen to me. You will fall into the leaven of the Pharisees if you don't know that God is omniscient. He knows everything. Anything that's been hidden, he can reveal. You see, a hypocrite can only go on being a hypocrite without repenting if he can deceive himself into thinking that I know my heart's bad, but I'm fooling people on the outside and I'm fooling God. And Jesus says, no, 
Don't you know that anything that was hidden will be revealed? Nothing that is covered up, there's nothing that is covered up that will not be revealed. There won't be one adulterous relationship that isn't revealed by God. There won't be one hidden sin in the dark, even though you've hidden it from every person on the face of the earth, that will not be revealed. The gospel kills you first. It reminds us, God's word exposes us, shows us as hopeless people, so that we cry out and say, is there any way my sin can be covered? Yes. Fall down on your knees and beg for mercy from God in His Son, Jesus Christ. The one who uncovers His sin, it'll be covered. God forgives sinners. He came to save sinners. And he warns his disciples, he says, don't fall into the trap of trying to look good on the outside and hide the true reality of your heart on the inside. Because that's going to be your temptation in church. That's going to be your temptation among Christians. Is you think, well, I'm a Christian. I got to be a good one. This is why you have man... Men after men sitting shoulder to shoulder in a church, all of them might be losing the battle to pornography and nobody knows it. There is no fight because they've got to hide it. But the gospel calls us out for help. We need each other, men. You can't worship when you're hiding sin. You know you're being a hypocrite. You need to find a brother in Christ and tell him what you're struggling with. Ask for prayer. Come talk to me. Fight the fight of faith. And then come. To not be a hypocrite doesn't mean you're not sinful. It means that you quit hiding it. And you recognize your need for him. The second parable he gives is really similar. He says, therefore, whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You know, we should never say anything about someone else if we wouldn't say it out loud for everyone to hear. You see, we, we hide sin all the time. But Jesus, through these two little proverbs, shows us the futility of hypocrisy. And he warns them of this leaven, which is evident in the Pharisees. Really, the Pharisees are those who claim to know God, but the fruit of their life proved different. Back in Luke 8, when Jesus talked about the uh, seed that was scattered on the four different soils, 
which is the word of God preached. The second soil was the rocky soil. Here's what Jesus says. The ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, they received it with joy, but these have no root. They believed for a while, and in time to, times of testing, they fell away. When things got hard, when they began to suffer, they fell away. And then he talks about those who fall among the thorns that get choked out by the riches and pleasures of this life. And then he gets to the good soil. They, they are those who hear the word, hold it fast with a good and honest heart, and bear fruit with patience. And then the very next thing Jesus teaches is he says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manif manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Take the care then how you hear. For to the one who has will be given more, and from the one who does not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. You see, the hypocrite fools himself into thinking he has something when he really doesn't. Where the seed that falls on the good soil is the person who has light shining into their life. They see their sin. They don't have to put on a show. And their only hope is Christ. So he warns them of hypocrisy. Second thing he warns them of is he says they must beware of fearing man. Beware of the fear of man. A positive way to say this might be believe man's limitations. You see, we fear man when we think man's sovereign, but when we see man's limitations, there's no need to fear him anymore. Here's how Jesus says it. He says, I tell you, my friends, and he's distinguishing them from the Pharisees. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Now, Jesus just accused the Pharisees of being those who've killed the prophets, just like their fathers, and they're getting ready to kill him. And Jesus knows that these same people are going to kill his disciples. And he's preparing them to endure to the end in faith. And he says, do not fear those who kill the body. Get real, Jesus. What kind of statement is that? Do not fear those who kill the body. What, but what does he say? And after that, have nothing more that they can do? See, Jesus is creating a different perspective in his disciples' minds. In John 12, 42, here's what the fear of man will do to you. It says, nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, fear of man... They did not confess it 
so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Many people in Jerusalem, even leaders, knew Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, but they would not confess Him as Lord because they were afraid they would get kicked out of the synagogue. And if you got kicked out of the synagogue, you would look bad in the eyes of men. You see how crazy the fear of man, you see, you see what crazy things it'll make a person do? And yet, if we're honest, this is one of the biggest sins we all struggle with. What do people think of me? How are people going to perceive me? This is what keeps Christians from being honest with each other about their sins and their life. Jesus says, yes, they can kill your body. That's what they can do. But then he says, but after. And that's the key, isn't it? (laughs) Because up to that point, it seems ridiculous. But he says, but after that, they have no power. They're totally limited. All the Pharisees can do is usher you into the presence of God faster. They can't do anything to you. After that. So, what's the command? Do not fear them. They can't do anything. Imagine, let's just think of this, uh, try to illustrate this so we feel the shocking nature of it. A person comes into the emergency room with terrible chest pain, and the doctor runs a bunch of tests and he says, There is no need to worry. You are just having a massive heart attack and the only thing this can do is kill you. You say, you're insane. You're out of your mind to say something like that. And yet, Jesus understands reality and every soul of a person is eternal. Every soul is eternal. And he's reminding them that this suffering is going to be short. Paul called it. Paul was stoned. He was, got whipped more than you and I can imagine. Was beaten. Was, was shipwrecked. Suffered terribly. And he said this light and momentary affliction. What? What kind of perspective does the Apostle Paul have? Light and momentary affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that is awaiting those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, that's a perspective change. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, you have to see this world different. You have to remember what's real and and what real perspective is. And this is what he's already taught them. He's already taught them this back in Luke 9.21. he, he, He charged them, 
saying to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. So I'm going to go suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. He says, that's what's going to happen to me. And Peter pulls him aside in Matthew's account and says, may it never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. No, it's going to be. But that's not where it ends. And on the third day, be raised. That's what Jesus says. So, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to be raised. And then he shows them the Mount of Transfiguration where he shows them the end to encourage them to get through the suffering that's facing all the disciples. You will suffer. You've already suffered. You're going to suffer more. If you live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. And if you live in a fallen world, you're going to get sick. Your body's going to fail and you're going to die. If you live in a fallen world where we all have remaining sin, you're going to have relational tension with the people you love most. And then he turns to the disciples in Luke 9 and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Which means when we wake up in the morning, there's a part of Sam, the remaining selfish, sinful part of Sam, which unfortunately is still a big chunk inside of me, that's going to want to be king. It's gonna, I'm going to want things my way. I'm going to want to have things revolve around me. But I need to remember, if you want to follow me, you need to remember that I'm king. And I say, you need to take up your cross and die to yourself. I've been bought with a price. I'm a slave of Christ. The greatest among you will be servant of all. I'm not Lord of my life. God is Lord of my life. And that's what the fight of faith is. Waking up every morning. You got to fight that battle. Because you're going to think naturally, default, you're going to be king. And Jesus says, you want to follow me, you need to die to yourself. And then he goes further, he says, uh, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? Another statement that seems crazy. Jesus says, what would, you, what would it profit a man? What gain would there be if a person got all the power? All the money. All the relationships. All the beauty. What if you gained everything in this world and lost your soul? And Jesus is saying, that would be a bad transaction. Which means that this present time 
right now in this world isn't worthy to be compared to where your soul will spend eternity. All the Pharisees can do is kill you right now. After that, they can't do anything to you, is what Jesus says. Don't be people who are afraid. Be people who have perspective. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in verse 10, if you want to turn here, you can. He just gets done saying some things that would be surprising to the average person. He says in verse 3 of uh, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are beggarly of spirit. <laughs> what? Blessed means happy. Happy are those who are desperate beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over the fact that they have no righteousness, that they're beggars needing a savior, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, those who are like a punching bag. What's the point of a punching bag is it absorbs blows and it doesn't punch back, right? Nobody goes and buys the thing that you punch it and it smokes you in the face. You buy a punching bag that absorbs your punches. That's what meekness means. Blessed are those who absorb punches, for they shall inherit the earth. That's weird thinking. The world thinks the most dominating man with the biggest muscles and the greatest amount of weapons are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're poor, they don't have any, for they shall be satisfied. And then he culminates this in verse 10. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when that happens. Why? Because it's easy to endure it? No, there's reward in heaven for you. Blessed are you. And then he goes on to say, you know, don't pray in public so that people will see your prayers. Then you'll all have your reward. Your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you in the future. Don't fast in public for you will already receive your reward. Your father sees it and he will 
reward you. This is the principle that Jesus has been teaching them, that this is how they are to live. He goes on in Matthew 6 to say, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you're going to want to put all your value in this basket, and yet your eternal reward, which can never be touched over here, is secure. Now we're only going to get through point two today, but I want to conclude in the Psalms, starting in Psalm 3. Jesus has just told them not to fear those who can only kill the body. And this has been a part of the faith of believers all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout time. In Psalm 3, the context here is David's running for his life. His son Absalom is trying to kill him. Can you imagine your own son trying to kill you, having that much relational stress, having that much fear for your life? But he says in Psalm 3, I lay down and slept and I awoke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many of thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. He's on the run. He's sleeping outside. The very plan that night is to kill David, to find him in his sleep and kill him. And David says, I sleep good tonight. Even if thousands of people surround me, I will not fear because the Lord is the one who sustains him. And then he wrote Psalm 4 the following night while he's still on the run. And he says this, I know the Lord has set apart the godly for himself and the Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts and on your beds and be silent. Now we're tempted when we're running for our lives or when we're suffering, we're tempted to get angry and begin to sin in our anger. But David says, I know that the Lord sets apart the godly for himself and that he hears me. And then he says, offer right sacrifices. Rather than get angry on your bed in the midst of your suffering, offer right sacrifices how? By putting your trust in the Lord. By trusting Him in the midst of suffering. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up your, the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than when, they, than when their grain and wine abound. <laughs> People are saying, who will show me good? Everyone's searching after good. And David says, when I'm running for my life and my son's trying to kill me, if God hears my prayer and if he looks to me, I have more joy in my heart than when all their circumstances are good. And then he ends with this, and I just love this. 
In peace I'll both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And it's the same reason in Psalm 23 when he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You see, when we know God, death isn't something we need to fear anymore. Why? For you are with me. Don't fear them. All they can do is kill your body. After that, they can't do anything. And even in your death, I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Remember, disciples, beware of hypocrisy and beware of fearing man. And next week we'll look at um, uh, the last two points. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus can disciple us today. Lord, everyone here is going through difficulties in their lives. I know that everyone here in some shape or form is having a hard week. I know that everyone here has need of endurance in faith, trusting the goodness of God. Father, I thank you as we look at the rest of this text next week that you assure us of your goodness and your care for us, even in the smallest details of our lives. Father, if there's anyone here who has never trusted in you, never received you as their Savior, never cried out saying that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I need righteousness I don't have. I need my sins washed away. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I need Him. I cling to Him by faith. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never done that, I pray that even right now you might give them faith to cling to Christ and to find their hope in Him, to have eternity secured, no matter the suffering that lies in front of them. Lord, this is what I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.